50% of all mental illnesses are going to arise or start by 15. Um, 75% of mental illnesses start by the age of 18. My younger brother Sam was diagnosed with clinical depression. I came out of the shower and my mum was walking up the stairs and she was like humming to herself mm -hmm. and she went to go and check on Sam and then the humming stopped and she just started screaming and screaming and screaming and Sam had taken his own life. It was just this bomb going off in your life. I was living with this intense guilt um, to the point where I thought I'd essentially killed my brother. If you lose someone, not just to suicide, but to anything, you have exactly those feelings of, I didn't do enough, I should have done more, all these questions, the what ifs, and you start blaming yourself. And if we teach things in schools and get schools properly sorted in terms of mental health and change the culture in schools, who knows what could have been different. And so I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think it was fixable. I wouldn't be wasting my energy if I didn't think we could make huge progress here. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of A Millennial Mind. Before we start this episode, I want to put a little trigger warning, because this episode is really heavy. We talk about suicide, we talk about grief, and we talk around self-harm too. Our mission with this podcast is to empower you to have the conversations that could really save someone's life. I'm going to put some links in the caption that can help you to have those conversations. And I'd be really grateful if you watch till the end of this podcast so that you can learn as much as I did. Thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. I really, really hope it's helpful for you. Ben. Hello. Welcome to Millennial Mind. Thank you for having me. I've actually been really looking forward to this one. So thanks for having me. I've been really looking forward to it as well because we met at a dinner yes. about a month ago and we were sitting next to each other. And I feel like we're really connected. And I'm, I'm going to give kudos to Con Conversation Cards, but also yeah. just to your personality. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, yeah. I, on, I can't, is that a month ago, really? I think maybe, oh, maybe longer. It feels like a year. <laughs> maybe longer, maybe yeah. longer. Um, was it before Christmas? Yeah. No, it was after Christmas, was it after? wasn't it? Oh no, it was this before Christmas. What? Oh no, it was. This is the oh gosh. Time of year that it just becomes like all jumbled Maybe together. It was three months it? ago, sorry. <laughs> that feels a long, that's been a long <laughs> form of four weeks. It has been a month. Yeah, yeah, sorry. No, it was probably, probably a long, longer time ago. But for people who don't know who you are, tell me a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. So um, my name's Ben. I'm a, a mental health campaigner. Um, that seems really funny to me to say because I never. I never spoke about mental health my whole life. I was never, you know, never thought that this was what I'd end up doing. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into to why that, why I'm now doing this now. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I'm a mental health campaigner. I speak to companies. I speak to governments, politicians. I speak to schools. I speak to anyone that will that will listen to me about mental health, um, about suicide. Um, about all of these issues um, and I, I basically my mission in life now is to try and get as many people to talk about this um, but also to actually enact those real tangible deep changes that we need to see to actually create a culture uh, and, a, and a country that, that really has um, you know the prevention uh, in, in place to stop people from getting to a point of, of suicide and, and mental illness but also you know a culture that, that actually we can just have this conversation with our bosses, with our friends, with our family, with our GP, um, and if need be, a, a specialist mental health team. Um, and and unfortunately, along the way, I found out that not a lot is available, and there are some very, very, very big problems that we need to tackle. And so my mission is basically highlight those problems, get it to the top, talk to prime ministers, lay it on the table, uh, and try and get some change. 
I love that. And you really are making such a big change. But I want to touch on what you just said when you said you've never, you never used to talk about mental health. You don't really know what mental health was. When was the first time you talked about mental health or understood what it was? Yeah. So I, there was a, there was a guy that came in once when I was at school and he was an external speaker, you know, if anyone's had them. And he comes in and he did his speech about mental health. Uh, I think it was a Tuesday afternoon. Everyone's, you know, when you've just had lunch and you're at school and everyone's yeah. like falling asleep. And he was in that and they mentioned mental health. And to be fair to him, great speaker, really, really good. Um, but the following week we had, in the same slot, we had these random people come in and talk about French pantomime. So in my in my head, in like sort of where mental health fitted in terms of importance was on the same level as French pantomime. That was the first time anyone had really spoken to me about it. And I was about probably about 16 years old. Mm-hmm. Put it to the back of my mind. Never never sort of looked at it again. And then the next time mental health came into my life was when my younger brother Sam was diagnosed with clinical depression. And my mum, we had dinner. My mum was just like, just thought I'd let you know, Ben. I was on my own with her. She was like, just thought I'd let you know. Sam's been diagnosed with clinical depression. And I just went, okay, <laughs> what What do I need to know that for? You know, he's a bit sad. Go and... You know, go for a run, go and see your friends, go and, go and, get, go and do something that makes you feel happy again. Like, depression just meant absolutely nothing to me. Um, it's like my mum had just been, been told me that, I don't know, Sam's got a cold. And you're like, mm. well, good for him, okay. <laughs> Off he goes then. Um, and so that was the second time it came into my life. And obviously, you know, I'd sit here now and I've, yes, it's, I wish I'd reacted differently to how that conversation went. Why do you wish that? Because, you know, there's me sitting there saying, oh, just deal with it. It's like a cold, not understanding it. Well, three months after I was told that Sam had been diagnosed with clinical depression and I'd just shaken it off, um, it was a Sunday evening in January and we had dinner together. My dad went off for work and I came out of the shower and my mum was walking up the stairs, and bless her, she's such a happy-go-lucky person. She was, like, humming to herself, mm-hmm. and she went to go and check on Sam, and I heard her walk up the stairs, and then the humming stopped, and she just started screaming and screaming and screaming, and Sam had taken his own life. And the reason I regret my choice to... Well, not my choice, but my inability to do anything when Sam was diagnosed was, you know... What actually happened three months prior to this was my mum had told me that Sam had been diagnosed with an, a fatal illness that in three months' time was going to take his, to claim his life. And I, on, I reacted like he'd been diagnosed with a cold. And I look back now and I'm like, how sad that I didn't give the attention and the drama that that situation needed. And I've spent a long, long time working on myself and my own mindset and understanding this. And I know now that it was not my fault that I didn't yes. know what depression was and I didn't react in the right way. But but my anger and my frustration then gets completely driven towards why why on earth was I at 17 years old not given the ability and the knowledge to actually have a conversation with Sam. Like We never spoke about it in those three months. I remember picking him up from school once it must have been early January and 
we both it was a 10 minute drive back home from school and we both sat there in silence and i know i just know there was an atmosphere both of want both of us wanted to say something i wanted to ask if you were okay he wanted to like start talking about it i could feel that in the atmosphere and neither of us could neither of us could break that barrier and actually have that conversation um and so yeah sam died and that was just i mean it was the, the most awful awful thing that i could possibly imagine happening i was only 17 sam was 15 years old when he died um and that night was just trauma and i you know i i went from this kid this happy go lucky kid that grew up in a bit of a bubble and was completely innocent one moment to someone that had you know we had fire brigade in our house we had ambulance we had an air ambulance we had everything just descend and in that one moment my childhood was just taken away from me i couldn't be this innocent child anymore i was i had responsibility in that moment i had to do cpr i had to help i had to do stuff and then from that moment on like my bubble the world that was so soft and cuddly and fun you know it wasn't the same anymore i had it was like this bubble had been burst and suddenly i'd been exposed to sadness like i'd never experienced before and trauma and and just absolute distress bottled it was it was just a blur of months after that um and even now i mean it's taken me six six years to get to a point where i've been treated for the trauma um of just that honestly just 20 minutes of of what that was like um and i guess for me part of what i want to do now is really tell that story as honestly and as directly as i can because i feel like we talk about suicide so much now but we talk about it in really broad brush strokes and and we talk about it in stats and we talk yeah. about it like this you know i've i've been there and i i was you know i had 999 on the floor calling the emergency services, them talking me through CPR. I had my brother in my arms that we had to, and then, you know, doing CPR. We had my mum hyperventilating, going into shock. I had to try and help. Like, that's the reality. And then you had to, it was just this bomb going off in your life. Um, and it, it took me six, it's taken me six years to process that, that one 20 minute period and just I mean just to give you a sense of just how awful it was I had a broken rib I mean anyone that's done CPR training on a dummy let alone a person like it's extraordinary it's so so you put so much force through your body I did 20 minutes and I didn't feel I just forgot that I had a broken rib such was the like power of the mind just take over take over the controls and just pop you in autopilot um yeah six six years later though six years later though i have to say i'm doing better i'm processed it and i'm incredibly proud of myself for getting through that um and now i can refocus get that that mission back you know i think we need to talk about suicide more more honestly um but also you know i so many i hear this same story so many times um and we just something has to happen to break that cycle there are far too many young people dying there are far far too many young people that are self-harming and are deeply deeply unhappy um and it doesn't just stop at young people there are millions and millions of people in the uk alone and billions around the world that that have a diagnosable mental health um, condition that feel isolated and ignored and not seen um so there needs to be a moment 
not just in the UK, but globally, where we, we suddenly go, actually, we need to flip the switch on this and we need to take this seriously. Otherwise, more people like Sam are going to die. Um, and even today, you know, there's going to be an enormous amount of people in Sam's position that won't see tomorrow because we we haven't got those strategies in place and we haven't got those policies written into into law. And so I'm, I'm absolutely laser focused on this mission now. We have to enact the changes that are going to protect future Sam from what happened to him and also future Ben's and people like me that that I wish more than anything I wasn't in this situation but you know I've, I've got to be laser focused I'm a mental health campaigner I wear that label proud let's go and try and fix this broken broken system that unfortunately leaves so many people in such an awful position I mean it's so sad to think of someone that that could even think about suicide and, and all of this I just my heart goes out to those people and, and for them to feel ignored and forgotten by society just can't be allowed to happen. It just it just can't. Yeah. Uh, they are, they're incredible individuals and they, and they don't have the energy to speak up for themselves. So if we can collectively as a society sort of get around them and, and push their voice and their message and, and stick up for them, then, then we can really drive change here. And I'm an engineer, by the way, like, I, well, I did, I end up dropping out of my engineering course, but my brain is an engineer and I'm a fixer. And so I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think it was fixable. I, I'm, I wouldn't be wasting my energy if I didn't think we could make huge progress here. Yeah. We can use, we can use, uh, ec you know, the current policies and the current um, situations and current things and, and change them and add things to them in a way that's economically you know efficient and we can make enormous we can make enormous amount of change here um and so you know i'm in a, I, you know my engineering mind just goes we've got to put the energy in because actually this is this is a really solvable issue and yeah. solving it means saving so many millions of lives across the world i was trying really hard to control myself i'm trying i'm trying really hard to control myself now um I can't imagine how horrible that moment must have been for you and your family, and I'm so sorry. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. I did not, I told you, I was like, yeah. I'm either going to ball yeah. or I'm going to be able to control Bless myself. Um, sorry. That's okay. I I want to essentially, and I'm, I'm please say no if you don't want to go back to that moment, because you said at the start, you blamed yourself for a long time. Mm. I think a lot of people whose loved ones have taken their life. Am I allowed to say take life? Yeah. Okay, because I'm, I'm always like conscious yeah, of the yeah, wording. Yeah. A lot of people in that position do blame themselves mm. and they feel really guilty because they feel like they didn't do enough. Mm. Yeah, well, did I, yeah, I blame myself. Um, uh, blame myself to a point where, and I'll give you, any, I'll give you just the insight of just how much blame I had. When... When something like this happens, and as anyone that's been through this will know, it's an unexpected, unexplained death. So yeah. you get an investigation by the police. Um, so, you know, in the days after Sam died, we had the police round and police were, were, you know, in our house. One of the last things that I did with Sam was have an argument. The last time I saw him alive was when I was shouting at him as he was leaving the room. Um, I was convinced in the days after that Sam had taken his own life that night off the back of the argument I had with him to the point where, and this is when your brain's tired and going through grief and all of this, it sort of latches onto, onto things. I, I felt so 
guilty in all of this. I was scared of telling anyone because I thought I'd done something illegal and I thought I was going to be blamed by the police for it. Um, so I was living with this this intense, like intense, intense um, guilt um, to the point where I thought I'd essentially killed my brother um, and I was terrified of telling anyone in case they you know the police found out and I was getting investigated for yeah. for contributing to this I didn't know what I was doing um, and that was the level and obviously I sit here now and I'm I want to shake yeah. I want to shake me and go of course that's not how mm -hmm. it works like you don't shout at someone then they go and die like it's not that's not how it works and you know I was his, br I was his brother like we didn't stop shouting we had like shout at each other all the time and then made yeah. up and you know that's how relationships with siblings work um but yeah guilt and shame it's guilt and shame are the worst emotions that that we face as human beings or not the worst but the most difficult we face as human mm. beings and it is it is absolutely everywhere you know you, you you've got lots of work on right and you're too tired to do it so you sit and watch netflix what bubbles up intense yeah. shame intense guilt right that's an awful emotion if you lose someone not just to suicide but to anything you have exactly those feelings of i didn't do enough i should have done more all these questions the what ifs and you start blaming yourself but actually you know you've got to try and and this is why it's important to reach out to people and and connect with people that have gone through similar things because they'll hopefully be able to sort of rationalize yourself rationalize these thoughts for you but you've got to imagine um if you if you were in a normal situation and take all this and take your grief and, and shame out of it uh, guilt and shame out of it how would you interact with someone in a normal way mm -hmm. and really in in life we're very bad at messaging people back we're really bad at saying i love you to our family members and our friends enough right yeah. we, we do that it's natural just because you've done that doesn't make you a bad person. The only time we should ever feel guilt and shame is if we've done something on purpose to hurt someone, right? That's the only time we should feel. If no one's hurt and you haven't done it on purpose, then you should just get rid of those emotions. Just get rid of the feelings. If you didn't intend to hurt them, then you just should not feel guilt and shame. And that's really easy for me to sit here and say, but actually we need to just reflect on those thoughts and go, did I intentionally do this? In my case, no, I did not. Yeah. Did I intend to hurt him? No. Absolutely no, I did not. So, you know, those feelings of guilt and shame, they're completely misplaced. Um, and that's what people need to start understanding. Because I know and I've, I speak to a lot of people that are going through gu uh, grief and that have lost people to suicide. Um, and those feelings, I mean, if I'm being really honest, one of the one of the biggest risk factors for a suicide attempt is losing someone to suicide. Um, it's one of the it's one of the most likely uh, it's a, a massive risk factor. Um, so this this level of guilt and shame, you know, we know can kill people. Grief yeah. grief is a is a fatal. It can be fatal, right? So we need to be able to to have conversations about grief and about these things. And I think it's really important that we talk about it now because actually these emotions are just an exhausted, damaged, injured brain that is that is limping its way through a difficult situation um, and it's it is capturing and 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 really latching onto these difficult thoughts as a way of trying to understand an irrational situation um, you know with suicide that's why I tend to tell people that are that are, that are bereaved by suicide is that you'll never be able to understand it because you're rationalizing the irrational and your brain will try so hard to come up with a rational explanation yeah and it's my fault it's really rational, yes. Um, but you can't you can't rationalize it, and and so the sooner you sort of understand that, you know, you never intended for it to happen, so therefore you can't feel guilty about it, the the better.
That makes so much sense because I also think when something bad happens or something good happens, our brain looks to blame something. Yeah. yeah. Or it looks to see, okay, well, why did that happen to me, whether good or bad? And I do that all the time. And, you know, one thing you've just said around guilt and shame, it's really hard. And I think forgiveness is very difficult. And I remember at that dinner when we went round and one of the questions on the conversation cards was, who would you forgive this year? Hmm. And one of the guys said, I would like to forgive my dad, but I'd also like to forgive myself. Hmm. And so many of us, when we think about who to forgive and who we love the most, think of others Hmm. and we never say ourselves. Forgiveness and and goes hand in hand as well with pride yes. I think especially as Brits right we we find it very very hard to be actually proud of what we did and it's like you said we're looking for external reasons why bad things have happened and external reasons why good things have happened um forgiveness Oof. I'll tell you one I so I didn't talk about the guilt for years <clears throat> um just because it felt too much of a too awful to tell anyone about you know, I, even with strangers, you know, how I, I just kept thinking, oh, you think of me as such a nice, nice person. Um, how am I now meant to tell you, like, this is what I did and this is what I'm feeling? Mm-hmm. Um, I just couldn't believe how I could be so awful to this person. Um, and you you say the word horrible, I, I think it's human, right? And, and it, it got to a point with me where I actually got the courage to sit down with my counsellor, Lucy, who was just an absolutely brilliant person that came into my life completely by chance. Um, And I started, you know, after a few sessions, I got to know her. And then I was like, um, I really struggle with guilt. I think it's all my fault. If I'm really being honest, I think that's what happened that evening, blah, blah, blah. And she just stopped me and she was just like, bam, bam, bam. You've got to realise it's not your fault. And it was the first time anyone had said that. And I just remember as soon as you had the external voice going, no don't be silly that's Mm. not how it works I just immediately went oh of course (laughs) and it seems so simple but it's just having that external authoritative voice that knows what they're talking about being like no 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 that's not how it works at all and you just my brain it was just this moment and I remember it because I came off that call and I think I put on some like music and I was like this is so good and I was exhausted don't get me wrong from dealing with it all but I was just like Oh my god! It that it it's not how it works. Of course, that's not how it works. Um, and that was a that was a big moment in my forgiveness. But I don't think it was sort of happened overnight. It was a case of really understanding how this works, and and for me, really understanding how suicide works. Um, so I've had the privilege, and it is a privilege, of working with some people now that you're very very lucky to be alive uh that went through right to the very deepest darkest places um and narrowly survived suicide attempt and it's taken me talking to them and really understanding that mindset where they were how they were feeling to understand that when you're in that suicidal mindset you're not thinking about the the menial stuff that people are saying you're not thinking about an argument you're not thinking about all these these things that potentially we're thinking about your brain is has become such has constructed this tunnel vision 
um, over over potentially a long time to the point where you don't see all this stuff that we're thinking about. You just see, I'm in pain, suicide is the way forward. And you just become, oh, of course, that's what I'm going to do. And actually, it's been talking to those people and understanding that side of things and and obviously working with my counsellor that I've now realised that it's not my fault. Yeah, I did absolutely everything I could as a 17-year-old um, that was uneducated in all of this uh, to help. I did. Mm-hmm. I did an amazing job. Um, I, you know, I was 17 and I performed CPR. Uh, that's an, a, a thing I'm actually really proud of. Like yeah. I was, it, I, I just think now, like for a long time, I questioned whether I was loving enough to Sam. And I think now, like when you strip it back, I did something that was the epitome of love, which is put my entire entire body into trying to literally beat his heart for him I mean that for me is just an incredible honor to have been in that moment um obviously it's the last time I saw him it's the last time I touched him was actually in this awful situation yes but doing this just incredible service um and so for me yeah it's taken a long long time to start looking at these situations and going hell yeah I did a good job there Mm. or actually you know I was only 17 I was a child like I couldn't I wasn't how can anyone expect me to have gone oh depression let's go have a chat Sam let's go and do you know Mm. let's let's talk about it like I was no one could expect me to do that I'd never even heard the word depression before um and so, yeah, I've got to the point where slowly over time, building those ideas and believing those ideas, I've built some sort of forgiveness. But also, I think it's about, for me at least, it's been about moving that blame yeah. um, and going, it is. it feels like a crime that I wasn't educated until I was 15 um, on mental health. I mean, and even then it was that French pantomime yeah. nonsense, right? it feels so unjust that there is not the education um, on this. And look, I, I don't, you know, you can't tell, you can't tell the past based on based on what we can do. But it, had we had proper education, had I been taught about depression in school, had I reacted to my mum being like, oh, what's, what's our plan then? What are we going to do? And actually started to help Sam and, and give him some space outside of school and, and sort of walk beside him and, and have that, that relationship um, that I could have done if I understood this. Who knows? Who yeah. knows what could have been different? And if we teach things in schools and get schools properly um, sorted in terms of mental health and change the culture in schools, who knows what could have been different? Um, but again, what drives me is the belief that these things are so easy to do and actually they'll save money. Um, so it, f- it feels just ridiculous that we are constantly um not just every year just seems to not invest properly in these these really crucial things in schools um and that's where my forgiveness has gone i've been forgiven and certain other people haven't <laughs> um but that's been driven into into my campaigning but then on the flip side you know it, and i mentioned it there it's like this pride thing yeah um and i can sit here now and i think i did I did a really good job um, and even in the last few years like I've just and anyone that's anyone that's gone through this will know it's going to counseling is really terrifying it's terrifying because you sit there a bit like we're doing now and you're like this person is going to get inside my head and stuff yeah. and it's honestly it's absolutely terrifying because these emotions are so hot and to touch them feels so terrifying. Mm. And so knowing that that's going to happen is really scary. So I'm really proud of myself for getting through that as well. And giving my giving myself the ability to actually sit here now and be like, 
go on, 17-year-old Ben. I mean, you couldn't have done anything differently. And yeah. you did your best, right? Um, and we can't, we can't feel guilt or shame if we did our best. And I completely believe arguments and hissy fits and all this aside... I did a great job growing up, and I and, and even to Sam, I was like a good brother. I I think, um, but like you, I there's so many times in my life where I've had arguments with people or shouted or made my mum cry, and I'm like, oh, I'm such a bad person. Yeah, I'm like, what this language we use, like I'm a bad person, is so bad. We so we, bad. so many people you hear hear people say this, like I'm a bad person, or oh, I'm such a bad person for for doing this, and even internally we say that to ourselves, but oh. I'm a bad person. Let's reserve that for some particular individuals in history that have done really, really bad things or people that that purposefully hurt people. Like, don't don't make your entire self bad over one thing that we all do. Yeah. Anger, it's such a normal human emotion, but we have this really unhealthy relationship with it. We shout, we scream, we, like, lash out at people. That's a normal part of, of human interaction, and it's a normal human emotion. Um, and the only thing we do by suppressing that and being um, ashamed of that is bottle it up, and then we see, we see you know, it come out in violent, in certain people and I'm a strong believer in actually a lot of the issues we see in violence um, particularly violence against women and and girls and and, and, you know violence around the country is fueled by the same crisis that that killed my brother and it's this misunderstanding of emotions and not being able to to blow off steam and and, you know and and experience anger in a healthy way Mm. and actually if you bottle up anger all you're going to do is just pop and there it all goes and it, and it ends up in some difficult situations. Anger is such a hard emotion because so many of us will cling on to those memories when we've been really angry. And like you said, we'll call ourselves bad people. But there's been thousands more experiences that I've had with my mum that I've done so many nice things. Mm. And I won't remember those. I'll just remember that one incident. Mm. And it's so interesting that our brain does that. We'll remember the bad in us way more than we remember the good in us. And I think that it's really difficult to get out of that mindset. How did you start to adjust that? Because I'm sure there was times where you wanted to go back to that place and think, I'm a terrible person. Because it's, it's, like you said, it's more rational to believe that. Mm. How did you manage those thoughts when they, when they came up? Well, I think not not pushing them away, first of all. It's the same with every thought, right? Mm. Just acknowledging that it's there and actually seeing if what it is. Oh, I'm feeling guilty again. Um, and then again, going through that same process and rationalising yeah. it, being like, no, like we're not... And actually, in more real terms, it happens when I've forgotten to reply to an email or yeah. <laughs> I'm watching Netflix and I've got a really busy day. And that same, those feelings of guilt and shame so come up. True. And it makes you feel awful about yourself. And you're like, I'm really not doing well. I'm not doing well in my job. I'm not doing this. And you start just, your mind just loses itself. And it goes on this journey of like, ah, everything's going to, to, you know, falling apart. And you've just got to rationalize it, right? Again, guilt and shame. We feel it all the time, but it can only, it's only, only, you're only allowed to feel it if you've intentionally done something to hurt someone. So again, I'm watching Netflix. I've got a busy day. Ah, why am I so lazy? Blah, 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 blah. Feeling really guilty for doing this. And then you rationalise it being like, well, I haven't hurt anyone. I'm not intending to hurt anyone. But also, I'm really tired. And my brain just wants a break. So maybe, instead of attacking myself for 
for wanting to just escape for a little bit, I actually build that into my diary. Let's move something this afternoon across. Let's just put a, an hour just to relax, maybe have a nap or something. Yeah. And it's, so it's trying to changing how you're interpreting those thoughts. The thoughts are there because of all this stuff that tells you you've got to be doing all the time. And actually take a moment to be like, why am I doing this? Why am I suddenly calling myself lazy? Do I need a break? Um, that's in real terms how it works. And then with Sam, obviously, it's just rationalizing that, again, exactly what we've just spoken about. Yeah. Nothing I could have done. It's re, re, sort of very kindly, gently telling yourself that and trying to convince yourself that. Um, but uh, but it's interesting, you, you know, we you, you mentioned this weight that we have. Uh, the weight in our mind of negative far exceeds the weight of positive. And I like to, with when it comes to my mental health, I like to think of of our brains as the brains of our ancestors running around with rocks and bone arrows, right, <laughs> um, in the caveman. Like, our brain hasn't changed a huge amount since then. A lot of the pathways, a lot of the mechanisms still exist. Um, and if you were fighting for survival every day in a cave, you're not going to care about the positive things. No. They're great, brilliant, but don't really change much about your life. You're going to really care about bad things. And that means, you know, something you've done to someone else because your constant existential risk is being sent out of the tribe and mm -hmm. basically killed for upsetting someone. So you're constantly, constantly giving a huge amount of thought to how am I fitting in with society? How am I fitting in? Am I fitting in okay? Because you're scared of being separated from a group. But also, like all these little things, all these negative things, something going wrong, a stress, a threat, these are huge in our minds because it taps into the very yeah. in, like instinctive survival mechanism in our brain that goes, bad thing, ah, let's give it all of our attention. Good thing, oh, great, brilliant. Yeah. And what we need to do is actually use journaling and stuff like this to actually give that weight back to the positive exactly. and start rationalising some of the, the negative because we know that in our modern life, it's not an existential crisis every time you something bad happens. But we need to actively rationalise those things in our brain mm -hmm. and also be really kind. Like we're living yeah. with an old brain. I mean, it's like walking around with an iPhone 1. Like you do, let's not try and get angry at it all the time. Let's actually be kind, be gentle and start rationalising those thoughts. Um, and then you can, you can start making progress. And 100%, if you follow all of that, you'll have be more productive, you'll be more satisfied, you'll be better friend, you'll be like it it starts to to help every everywhere. Um but it starts with just rationalizing and just being kind to yourself. A lot of people that are listening to this are people who have children that are very young or perhaps are around the age of 11 to 15 or maybe even older. Everything you're saying to me makes sense. But I'm not sure if an 11 year old or a 15 year old would feel that they were able to rationalize their thoughts in the same way as perhaps we are as, well, I'm 30, you're 23. I'm very mature for a 23 year old. Um, how can we help those parents to start having those conversations with their children? Because one thing that parents are afraid of is giving their children so much knowledge mm. that they then start understanding so much around their mental health. And I know that sounds really ridiculous, but often people are scared to have the conversation because they're saying, I don't want to make them aware of something that they're already ignorant about. So why would I tell my child about suicide at the age of 11 mm. and put the thought into their minds? It's, a, it's such a good question because this really, this really gets to the crux of the issue, right? Especially around suicide. Um, it's, first of all, a really brutal, really sad, really bad 
thing that happens, okay? Yeah. And having that conversation is going to be scary because it's just like, oh, this is an awful thing that happens. It's the same with self-harm. I mean, yeah. how do we how do we even broach that with a child that actually doesn't understand it? Um, so the research says that that you can ne- you will never you will never give people ideas of suicide by talking about it to them. Um, and in, in fact, it's overwhelmingly the other other way that actually by talking about it, you can create a healthy relationship and a healthy dialogue about emotions and actually reduce the likelihood of someone going to that place, um, particularly going to that place without telling people. Um, so actually, the, the evidence is have the conversation. Don't worry at all about planting ideas. Um, it 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 absolutely doesn't do anything bad. All it does, um, or overwhelmingly what it does, is, is actually create a really good dialogue about emotions. But I understand that is terrifying as a parent because you want to protect your child from all these things. Um, and so it can be really, really difficult to understand the need to have these conversations. Um, but I will, ha- I will say, like, I've worked with with psychologists and, and, and clinical professionals that and my question to them is always like what's the age range what what's the sort of age range of people you see and it's gone it's gone as low as three I mean yeah yeah there's there's been people I've spoken to that have said you know they've dealt with three-year-olds that have these complex issues um three and so I'm you know I'm in a position I I do a lot of work with department of education and schools um and the feedback usually is oh, we're not going to, we sort of do mental health stuff, but we leave it for like sixth form when they can understand emotions. Um, and that's great, but, you know, we know statistically 50% of all mental illnesses are going to arise or start by 15. Um, 75% of mental illnesses start by the age of 18. So teaching um, 17, 18-year-olds about mental health, like half of the half of people that are struggling with mental health have already started that. So it feels far, far too late. Um, for me, it's not about just forcing these conversations into lower and lower age categories, but actually starting to understand how do we change the language to give five-year-olds, three-year-olds emotional intelligence, starting to talk about emotions in a different different way. Yes. Um, start taking the, the sort of positive and negatives out of emotions. Anger, it's not bad right is a great start stop let's stop calling anger a bad thing because all we're telling people is that they should avoid being angry yes. we can't avoid being angry you know we shouldn't we shouldn't bottle up any emotion um and and actually start teaching people that if you're angry be angry but in a safe way go and scream into a pillow mm. right go and whack a ball as hard as you can to the back of a net right these are some of the things i do to, to help it and so for me it's about try and change that language and teach people what emotions are before we get there and with suicide in a in a way that's appropriate and and not brutal and, and not you know not that's going to harm them or, or make them disturbed but we've got to talk about the fact that some people feel as an, an intense enough emotion that they don't want to be here anymore or that you know they end up you know hurting themselves right we know that that's not going to make people do it yes all that will do is have a difficult conversation which goes oh i'm in this situation now and i feel like this that's something i've been told before that feels like a safe subject to talk about now like anything we don't say because we think it's too much to say all it does is that's what creates taboo right we've seen exactly the same thing happen with sex education yes like it's such a taboo in this country and parents rightly really difficult conversation to have because you don't know what the age limit is do we talk about sex that's a bit weird Mm. 
all it does is create adults that really find it difficult opening up about uh, sexual health and, and, and sex and all of this stuff. And it's just an awkward thing that people mm-hmm. don't talk about. Um, and so if we want to create especially health change, um, we need to try and strip that taboo. And it takes it takes bravery from parents because it's really difficult to get it's the really words hard. right. There's a lot of great resources online about talking to young children about emotions. Um, and I'd, I'd have a read and, and try and make yourself comfortable. But also, if you're a parent out there and you do want to have this conversation with a child, like you haven't received this education either. You know, you've you've been served mm. a, misjust, a misjustice by not being given this education. So I think the first step really is go out there and, and try and learn what you can yeah. about your own feelings. Try and change your perspective of anger and guilt and shame and all these and sadness and, and cry. Like try and challenge your own way of thinking. And then if you can understand it, you'll probably be able to to tell a, a child in a way that's sensitive and in a way that's educational and helpful for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all need to, I think we all have a responsibility to go out because of this mis- misjustice of not being educated and go and really challenge our own thoughts and our own thinking behind emotions because if you go, if we go out there on the street now and start asking people questions about anger and about crying and about tears and about all of this, there's a huge amount of of misinformation and, and, a, and, a, and a wrong mindset when it comes to certain emotions. And I think we should be challenging that and 100% talking to children their whole life um, in some way, in, a, in an age-appropriate way, we should be talking about mental health from the first day they go into, or they step foot in the classroom, mm. um, because it's so important. And I think actually, your schools are there. This this is my policy hat on now, rather than teach, um, <laughs> rather than the parents. Schools are there to prepare child for adulthood. Correct. And if we don't equip them throughout all of that process with the ability to understand their own emotions. Um, they are not prepared for adulthood at all. (laughs) And that's why we see so much, so many social issues and so much uh, of of mental health issues present themselves in adulthood when they get into that unsafe world because they've never been taught any of this. I think it's just just so, so sad that we've not done that. Um, And and unfortunately, in my job, I see the effects of that every day. Um, Funerals and talking to people, bereaved people, people that are in mental health units. It's just, it's a really bad situation. But we change all of that by having difficult conversations early um, yeah. and giving children the language to talk about difficult emotions. Um, so it's not embarrassed that you're feeling sad mm. or embarrassed you're feeling angry or embarrassed you're feeling shamed. It's actually like, oh, this is what I'm feeling. Um, let's go. And yeah. if, we can, if we can get children actually being honest about this, uh, oh, that would be an amazing, amazing thing. Because you imagine, imagine an adult that's just sitting there like, in their head going, I'm angry. Oh, I should go and do this instead. Or let's not feel guilty and shame about about not, you know, meeting the expectations in work, which happens to everyone. Um, and instead of internalizing it, going, Oh, I didn't hurt anyone, so I can't feel guilty about this. I'm gonna ch- I'm gonna rationally think about what I'm gonna change to improve next time. So but I'm true. not gonna pin it on my identity and lead to the phrase that I absolutely hate, which is I'm a bad person. No one's. A, I've not met met anyone that's called themselves a bad person yet who is actually a bad person. Um, and we want to try and avoid that. And we avoid that by understanding where those thoughts come from. So true. I cannot understand why in school we're told to memorize the periodic table. Yeah do our times tables and yeah. do other irrelevant equations that we do not need later on in our life, but we are not taught about oh. mental health no. and financial literacy. Don't. Like, why are we not taught about those things? Because I think a lot of mental health problems also come 
from people when they're older about finance and money. And we're not taught about those things. Huge stress. It's a massive stress and it causes people the most amount of anxiety because they have no idea how to manage their money. They haven't been taught about tax and then they're put in a position where they're like, why was I not taught this? And who teaches us about tax? I have no clue. (laughs) I know. And the other thing was, it's really interesting that you said we should be able to say, I'm angry. If you think about when you're in an argument with someone and if you respond to how your, your emotion, I'll sh- so if, let's just talk about me. When I'm in an argument with someone, I'll shout at them because I'm angry. But there has been a point where I've said, I'm really angry actually. And that person has responded by saying, I'm so sorry, why are you angry? And when I've been able to explain why I'm angry, I do not shout. Mm. But because sometimes I feel embarrassed to say I'm angry, my natural reaction is to just shout. Mm. And it's the same by saying I'm hurt. It's like you're embarrassed to say you've hurt me because it's our ego. Mm-hmm. Like you've upset me. A lot of, I've noticed actually before I used to just say, well, you haven't upset me, so I don't care. I don't care about you and you haven't upset me. And I'll say that in like a, in an angry way. But recently I've been saying you've really hurt me. And I've mm. just by saying that simple phrase and it sounds so stupid and so simple, but we're not told to express how we're actually feeling. Yeah. We're told to respond and react. Mm. And it's such a simple phrase. Just say, I am angry, or I am hurt, or I am feeling insecure. I'm feeling guilty. Mm. Because when you're feeling guilty, often you'll lash out by deflecting it. And it's it's so crazy we're not taught yeah. these simple sentences in life. Oh, I mean, mic drop moment there. If we could drop these mics, they went on stands. <laughs> I firstly... Hit the nail on the head with periodic table. I remember learning the quadratic formula in maths. When have I ever used the... I did, albeit not the whole degree, the two and a half years of an aerospace engineering degree. I didn't use... Maybe I didn't do very well at the degree, to be fair. I didn't use... Still did it. I didn't do the quadratic equation once. Maybe that was why I didn't do so well at it. But I'm like, why are we taught these things? And with tax, I mean, I I consider myself quite good at maths, right? I I went to engineering. I'm quite good at maths. Um, I've got to phone HMRC tomorrow because I've got absolutely no idea what's going on with my tax. I put my self-assessment in and I realised the deadline's in like, like two days mm. and I'm like do I pay do I not pay I've got this refund that's just come through but then I'm like it's just an absolute mess I don't know what's going on um we shouldn't be setting people up for this and talking about like, all these amazing initiatives out there that you see from the incredible like money saving people on Instagram that like invest in this ISA because yeah. it gives you like tax-free cash in, in, uh, when you when you retire. And you're like, why is no one talking to me about this? What is an ISA? I why was I not told this? Why and then is, yeah. everyone's like, you're so stupid. <laughs> yeah. Do you not have an ISA? And I'm like, yeah, I do. I mean, what? I, I missed the saying. ISA lesson. I know. <laughs> is it like PSHE? Yeah, that's Where it. you had that half an hour block, which oh, for me was just God. half an hour to sleep no. with my eyes open. But for me, I'm like, why is not... That's PSHE, which is one yep. half an hour's lesson a week. Is that true? Yep. I don't know if that still yeah, happens. Half an hour. Why can that not be about mental health? Every single week. Yeah. So this is exactly what's happened is the government. So legally, stat- statutorily, which I can never say, statutorily. Yeah, I can't um, say that word either. <laughs> statutory. Legally, a school has to do <laughs> half an hour of PSAG a week, right? There's a minimum. Why? Can um, I ask? Just because it's about <laughs> it's about broadening the, the curriculum. So you're taught and PSAG covers sex education. It covers okay. um, mental health now. It covers... Um, a few other things, drugs, internet safety, 
fire safety, whatever a school wants to do. There are a core, there are core subjects that they have to teach, and there are some that you know the school can use the rest of the time to do whatever they want. Mental health was added to PSHE a couple of years ago, right, for every key stage. So Great. right the way through primary school, all the way through to the end of secondary school. However, which is key to what you just said, there is no requirement for them to do any more than mention it once in the curriculum. So you could, if you're a school that potentially doesn't have the resources to do this in a, in a meaningful way, you could do one half an hour lesson in one year on mental health, ticking the boxes that they've got on the curriculum, and that's it, that's you legally, you've fulfilled your responsibility to educate on mental health. But also, if we take this issue a little bit further, and this really touched on what I'm doing at the moment, to become a teacher, you don't have to know anything about mental health, right? To train as a teacher, to qualify as a teacher, you have to, you've got no requirement to do any training on mental health at all. I mean, mental health is not even mentioned in the, the actual qualified teacher status standards, which is what lays out what a teacher becomes. And for me, it starts beyond, It starts before the classroom. And I think the next step that we need to do um, from an education point of view is actually change those standards, include mental health in the teacher training standards, give every teacher that's coming into the industry an educational mental health. And when they get injected into a school, they come with that experience, they come with that knowledge, they can intervene in situations where they're yes. worried about a child, they have the language to have those conversations. And then when the head teacher goes, who wants to talk about mental health and, and lead this class, you've got a teaching uh, a teaching you know group yeah. that that understands these things and you don't have someone reading off slides you can have someone that's coming at this from a place of knowledge you wouldn't hire a physics teacher that's trained as a biology teacher no. right or you wouldn't hire a physics teacher that's trained as a a french teacher right you need them to have that baseline understanding at the moment teachers and and schools in general don't have a baseline understanding of mental health and so for me let's teach people about mental health Let's have far more than uh, a requirement of one half an hour yes. every year. Um, but also, before we do that, we have to make sure that teachers have access to education. Um, and it just strikes me as bizarre that it's 2023. It's not, it's 2024. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it strikes me as bizarre that it's 2024 and we don't have teachers that are required to know anything about mental health. When, you know, every year there are 19,000 children between the ages of 13 and 19, hospitalized for self-harm. No. Um, 19,000. Um, and that we compare that with one about 1,900 of the same age group hospitalized for anaphylactic shock. Like That's almost 10 times as many children hospitalized for um, self-harm than anaphylactic shock. And we'll take measures in schools to protect against um, you know, major allergies. We'll train teachers in how to use an EpiPen. But, but we haven't even taken a step towards training teachers in, in mental health, giving them the tools the, and the confidence to approach children, children and, and intervene in, in situations where they're worried about them and also educate them. Um, so anyway, that's, that's where yeah. we're going next. <laughs> I think it's quite difficult because I presume that teachers' arguments is it should be the parents' job. And it's really difficult for parents because they're like, well, my child is spending a lot of their time at school. But it is really hard, Ben, because if I think of myself as a parent, mm. and I'm not, but if I think of myself as a parent who's really struggling to put food on the table, who, you know, lives on a minimum wage, who has my who has their own mental health problems, and then you don't know how to approach your child. Mm. And, you know, I think in the modern day, everyone is so stressed. 
like these numbers you're talking about are, are crazy. And I, mm. I think they're all going up, right? Like yeah, every year yeah, they yeah. get worse. And that's because people don't have the attention that they need, both children and adults. So what are some of those small things we can do every single day as a parent that isn't perhaps such a big leap of saying, spend an hour with your children to talk to them about mental health and don't put on the TV? Mm. You know, I'm, I'm just trying to think of like a quick win and there might not be. But I want to encourage parents to do just yeah. just a small thing every week. 100%. I think it's, um, well, firstly, again, like before we get into how you deal with your children, it's actually your own knowledge. Um, because that is the, one of the best things you can do for your children is make sure that you actually understand as understand these issues um, um, and understand emotions. And then I think it's worth, I think it's worth a conversation about, you know, a conversation about this. Mm. Um, you know, and, and I think this, it's not so much should teachers do it or should parents do it like in a perfect scenario it both happens because schools can then act as a catalyst for conversations at home i love it when i hear from parents and they're, they're like oh, it was great because my school did a lesson on mental health and my son or daughter came home and they were like oh this is what we did today and then you can then piggyback that and go oh what did you think about that and start having yeah. a conversation um you know about about these things and it's great when that happens um but i think yeah educate yourself try and understand these emotions yourself um talk to try and present these to your children talk about these things maybe when they're angry instead of and this is hard to do because obviously it's heat at the moment but instead of getting angry back sort of stepping back and and having a chat with them afterwards about that's really normal yeah like, it's really normal like yeah. you're young you're growing up your brain's rewiring like completely um yeah. don't let's not stigmatize it or get angry back um and that all comes from understanding emotions um yourself um and then i would say and this is a slightly somber note, but I would say really understand the warning signs of when things are bad. Like I, I, we hear it all the time, unfortunately, with suicide, especially is no one saw it coming. Um, and it's uh, even cases I've seen and talked and been involved in. You really, yeah, it's almost impossible to see that this person was struggling until they died. Um, and, and even self-harm and people that are in really bad situations with their mental health, they can be very, very, very good at masking it so that no one will know. Um, they do, however, let a few things out. Um, and so always, I think, as parents, always be, and, and not just parents, but anyone in part mm. of society, friends, parents, teachers, colleagues, whatever, really be aware of behaviour changes and, and importantly here, for the better and for the worst. So obviously everyone knows if someone's going and crying or like doesn't want to see friends anymore, there's something yeah. going on and that's worth a conversation. Um, uh, but also, especially particularly with suicide, one of the symptoms that no one talks about is that actually for a lot of people that are suicidal, when they're about to die, they become happy and actually become very outgoing and very confident and will go want to do things and want to see people and will you know come in and hug you or something and be really lovely um and we know that that happens because they've basically made their mind up that that's what's going to happen and the relief of suddenly not having any responsibility is enormous and so this is why a lot of people say we didn't see it coming because actually some of these things are really subtle yeah. and actually can be the antithesis of what we expect um and you know I know a lot of people that, that this has happened to where 
people have just done the weirdest things, like coming and, and being all love, like fun and gone out and saw their friends. And, and I know I worked with a guy called George who did exactly this. And he in the run-up to his date that he'd set to, to take his own life, he was doing things with his family. He was going out and doing things and seeing people and having fun. And and actually he was doing that because he was suicidal, not because he was getting better. Um, and so I'd say just for people out there, like, and and fam and parents particularly, like don't be alarmed by this. Don't let yourself get stressed over this. Let's face it. Thankfully, in this country, the suicide rate is still incredibly low. Like it is. Obviously, the number five and a half thousand a year is higher than it should be. Um, but it is incredibly low. Um, so that's not that, and that's not to say, don't think about it, but don't panic about it. Um, the, these issues are solvable. I work with some brilliant psychologists who, when you get the support at the right moment, you know, you can, you can really save these lives. Mm -hmm. I work with one guy 20 years in clinical psychology. He's never lost a patient, right? They're, they're, when you get the right support for someone, it's fixable. Mm -hmm. Um, and that I guess is another prong to my mission, which is if it's so solvable, why on mm, earth yeah. aren't we solving every time? So I'd say that's parents basically educate yourself. Um, have these conversations, um, tr try and actually engage in a conversation about mental health and always be on the lookout for behavioural changes. Even if it's nothing, it's mm -hmm. worth a conversation to understand how they're feeling um, and just explore their emotions with them. Try and explore, like, what do, you, what do they think about anger? Like, what yes. do they think it's a good thing or a bad thing? What do they think about crying and tears and, and being sad? And mm. on the flip side, what do they think about like happiness and how would they describe it? I think it would be an awesome conversation to have. Um, and you can be quite creative with how you have it. But Absolutely. anything that starts engaging those conversations and talks about emotion, I think it's just, it's a really brilliant thing. You, you can't go wrong with that conversation. When I was uh, looking after my niece one day, before she went to bed, I had to do this wall calendar thing with her. And one of the things on the wall calendar was what day is it today? And it was a day, it was a morning and evening thing that she does. And it was very normalized for her to track her mood. So I have a mood tracker yep. in my planner which is my performance planner. If anyone wants to buy it, you can buy it. Um, and when I fill it out every day, I've become more comfortable by, by saying, okay, yeah, I'm having a bad day. And at first I felt very uncomfortable to write that because I then thought, oh, it's going to ruin the rest of my day. But what it's forced me to do is actually understand why. And when I was doing the same thing with my niece, I remember it was different emotions. And it said happy, angry, sad, not sure. Mm. And what it did was force me to ask her, how was your day today? And she said, I said, how are you feeling? And she said, happy. And I said, why? And she told me about the reason why she felt wow. happy. And it's such a simple thing to do. But as an adult, we should have a mood tracker. And as a child, if you incorporate it into like a normal thing like she did, not like a separate thing of how was your day today? Yeah, how's yeah, your mood? Yeah. But very much asking, oh, what day was it today? What was the weather today? You know, it was small things like that. I can't remember exactly. But it really helps to have that conversation. Mm. I remember also listening to a podcast where someone was saying that when you're suicidal, the reason why you do it is because you want the pain to stop, which is true. And you want the pain to stop for you. But what people don't understand is that the pain stops for you, but all you're doing is transferring that pain to the people around mm. you. And that's why I think it's still really hard because some people really awfully say, and I think this is an awful thing to say, by the way, that suicide is selfish. Because in that moment, that person doesn't, I don't believe that they are making a choice. I think that they 
don't know what they're doing. I don't think that that they're in a conscious state and a logical state to say like, I know what I'm doing. Mm. But a lot of people do say that. Have Have you found that people are still saying that? Oh yeah, uh, there's a lot of myths um, occur around suicide. Um, one you you mentioned at the start this understanding of what we're allowed to say and not allowed to say. The big one that we don't say is committed suicide yes. because that's the sort of hangover from when it was a crime. Um, pretty much any other phrase I'm okay with, um, mm-hmm. but it's just that one is 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 just makes it feel like someone's done something wrong. And that's really it. They haven't done anything wrong. Um, again, it took me a long time to realise that and it took me working with people that have been in that situation to understand it because people can say... Oh, you know, it's not them think. It's not them thinking. Blah blah blah. But actually, in that moment when you've when you've gone for it, I remember, especially just in the days after Sam died, the anger at what he'd done to our family. It was just, I was red with anger at what he'd done to me, to my family. It takes a lot to get over that. And what I'd say is, like, I've met I've met a lot of people that have been in that situation. And again, going back to this tunnel vision thing, what suicide is is tunnel vision um and it's a it's an injured brain that over time develops a desensitization to what it is they're actually thinking about and the more they think about it the more that happens the brain just starts to narrow in on this one thought um and as you as you can imagine in a tunnel you it's impossible it's it's absolutely impossible to look outside and to experience emotions and thoughts that aren't this one thought at the end of the tunnel. And that's what makes suicide so difficult because it is this tunnel vision. They can't see, uh, you don't have that rational thought of going, oh, but I can do this and this. Um, but also it's really important for people to know that they, they, they aren't doing it to just avoid their own pain. In a lot of cases, they're doing it for us to avoid their pain as well yes. because the biggest one of the biggest things that people feel when they're suicidal is a burden and is a weight on others and is someone that some people just deserve to live without yeah which we know is completely untrue um and you want to sort of shake them and be like no that's not true but you can't do that because they won't believe it but that that the, actually from their, their point of view a lot of people that go through this just think the world's a better place without me i'm helping everyone and again, the tunnel vision doesn't allow them to see what it can do, um, and it's irrational. But what's great about tunnel vision and this and the suicidal brain and how it works is the the only the, getting them out of that tunnel vision is as easy as presenting something, talking to them, challenging that thought, and giving them the ability to start thinking about other things, thinking about the future, going for a walk, noting, grounding themselves. As soon as you do that and you look out and you you get the ability to look out of the tunnel, the whole thing shatters, right? Which is great. And that's how we get through someone. And I'm a shout volunteer. I talk people through suicidal experiences all the time. Um, I talk to people in crisis all the time. And that's exactly what we're trained to do. Really build that trust and honesty between them. Understand how they're feeling. Allow them that, that permission to talk about it. Um gauge just how at risk they are so give them the opportunity to talk about just what they actually want to do and then we start framing it in a different way we start letting them letting them talk about their family let them talk about the world what their job is let's start talking about what makes you feel happy what's helped you in the past what do you enjoy doing and as we're doing that we're creating these little holes in the tunnel and if you can think about that if you can pick that tunnel and you pop those little holes in eventually the tunnel just shatters and suddenly you can see the world as a whole thing and that suicidal thought will remain but 
everything else remains alongside it. Um, and unfortunately, it constricts again the more you think about it. So this needs to happen time and time again. But it, that's how suicide works. It takes a lot of understanding to get to a point of view where I can sit here and talk about it like that and understand yeah. it. Um, but trust me, if you're going through it at the moment, you've you've got to know that there is no there is no thought about family. There's no thought about what it'll do. There's no. It's impossible for that brain to even think about it. Um, so you can't you you can't be selfish for doing something. You can't see the action. You can't see what action what result it's going to cause. And then the other myth is that people that take their own life are uh, weak oh, Sam wasn't weak like god anyone that wakes up every day to a brain that tells you that everyone around you and the world whole world would be better off with you with you dead and manages to get through the day go back to bed and wake up the next day like they've got they've got a huge amount of respect in my books just for managing if you do that for one day you've got respect in my books um i've worked with so many people that have been in some very 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 dark places that have got through it um and it annoys me when we call them weak because these are by a very 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 long way the strongest people i've ever met in my entire life um and some of those strong people we've lost along the way mm -hmm. but it doesn't take away from how strong they are for for getting through even a short period of time with those thoughts i have an enormous amount of respect for sam knowing what i know now about what he was going through that he was able to deal with it for so long and he engaged in the right services and talked to people to get that help. Unfortunately, that help wasn't good enough for him and, and he died. But it doesn't take away in my brain just how strong he was to have put up with it for so long. Um, unfortunately, he had an illness um, in the same way that people were diagnosed with cancer. And eventually it took his, it took his life. Um, and again, just like cancer, it wasn't his fault. It was an illness that yeah. changed him and, and took his, his life. It wasn't a decision. Um, and I'm sure, I, kn I know Sam, he loved life. I'm sure if he was able to rationalise it and think rationally, he would choose to live every day of the week. He loved life, absolutely adored it. Um, and it's just, it's such a shame that an illness took that away from him. And so now, again, it's my mission that more people need to be able to rationally choose life um, because I the world's a difficult place but life is just this beautiful beautiful amazing thing um, and Sam would have made such an incredible man and he would have done such amazing things and it's just my absolute passion now is to have these conversations and we can do this we can we can help people we can really do this we can make massive change and it it excites me it really does thank you for this podcast <laughs> And thank you for everything that you're doing because you're making such an enormous change. And so sorry, I was so emotional yeah, throughout. But thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Thank I feel like we need a hug. Yeah, hug. we do. <laughs>